Welcome to a unique and special broadcast from In Context today. I am Michael Easley. If you're new to the channel, we welcome you, whether it's on YouTube or however you access podcasts today. I've got extraordinary guests, but before I introduced David, it was 1967, June 5th. A perfect storm happened in northern Israel. Forces of Arab countries came together against Israel, and they fought over the West Bank, over Gaza Strip, over the Sinai Peninsula, and the Golan Heights. In that conflict were many different emissaries or proxies that were involved in it. My guest is going to explain some of that. The reason I want to start there, on the very day, on the very anniversary of what's called Yom Kippur, an atrocity, a terroristic activity happened in Israel, and we'll talk in some detail about that. Unless you've been under a rock, you know what's happening. And my guest today is not only an expert in all things Israel, but he also understands warfare. He understands what it's like to be a tank commander in the Israeli army. He has lived in country most of his life. And we became friends 20-some years ago through our relationships with tours in country. So uh, welcome to the broadcast, David Tall. David has a channel and will have show note links and you can go watch his Balagan connection, and I'll leave the story about Balagan for another time. But David, thanks for taking your time to help our listeners that in context understand what in the world is happening in Israel. Let me ask, first of all, because this to me is the one issue that's so complex. What is Palestine? What are Palestinian people? And I know the etymology of those words, but you're the expert. So help us to understand what are these people groups? What is this name? Well, first of all, thank you for having me. I am touched by the fact that so many people are now attuned and zoomed into Israel in order to find out what's coming in. And we're kind of amazed by the support. So first of all, thank you and, and all the people who are watching and listening to this for an amazing amount of support. Amen. Let's start off with the beginning. Palestine is a geographical term. Basically, I like to use the illustration of the Rocky Mountains. We all know where the Rocky Mountains are. Basically, it's an area between the Mediterranean Sea and the rest of the Middle East, the eastern part of the Mediterranean Sea. For a long, long time, the area had different names. It used to be called Judea, okay, from the tribe of Judah. Before that, it was called Canaan. I mean, Canaanites were there. At some point when the Romans got really upset with the Jews for rebelling a couple of times, the Romans decided to rename the area Palestina, basically to poke a finger in the Jewish eyes. And that became the geographical name for the area of Palestine that was under different historical empires over the years. We could talk about the Byzantines, which are Romans turned Christians. We can talk about the Muslims. We can talk about the Crusades that conquered Palestine. We can talk about Muslims again. Then we can talk about Ottoman Turks, and we can talk about British. All of these owned, controlled, or held Palestine as part of their territory. Again, like I said, it's a geographical term. It's only in the modern period it's become a political or a national term. Just like, I don't know, Rocky Mountains, there are people who live there, but there never was a country or a people. Let me ask you this, because in seminary, we read lots of textbooks, historical, theological, and they would talk about the land of Palestine. People have a Bible that have maps in the back. It'll say Palestine. Where does this come from? Again, from the Roman terminology. Okay. 
and okay. and again, and now was the etymology back to Philistia? Well, and what the Romans did because they were really upset with the Jews for rebelling the second time. I mean, we were the only people who rebelled against Rome twice. They actually reached into their Bibles because they know the history. They took Philistia, which was the name of the coastal area where the Philistines actually lived. By the way, the cities of Gath and the city of Gaza. I don't know if you remember, there's a biblical reference in Gaza. That's where the Philistines lived. And they actually decided to call the whole area Palestine, meaning we're not going to call it Judea anymore. We don't want the Judeans to be Judeans anymore. And we're going to call the whole area Palestine. And from then on, everybody who lived there, Jews, Arabs, and Christians, called themselves Palestinian Jews or Palestinian Arabs or Palestinian Christians. I've tried to use the illustration for Americans, and please correct me if this is a bad illustration. Hawaii, you'll talk about Polynesian people. Hawaii is a volcanic island. No one was ever indigenously born or lived there. People that inhabited there were due to British and Spanish cargo ships that were traveling through, and there were all sorts of interrelationships, let's say, and the people that ended up staying there are called this mercurial group, the Polynesian people. Is that a way of thinking about Palestine or not? Well, that would be good. But one of the things that we do connect to this part of the world, this is one of the most ancient parts of the world. Sure. I mean, this is where it all started off, which means there always were people living there. The indigenous people on the hills of Judea are the Jews, meaning the people who became a people, and that's written out in the Bible— or the Judean people or the Jewish people. We're the indigenous people. That's like, I'll give you an example, maybe the Black Hills of Dakota, okay? The Indians are the indigenous people. That's where their culture came together. That's where their language came together. The Aborigines in Australia, you would say something like that. They're the indigenous people. The Jews are the indigenous people of Judea, just that later on powers decided to call it something else, changed the name from Judea to Palestine. Okay. So then where does this huge rift come between Jews and Palestinians? We're going to go into history a little bit, but let's see if I can kind of illustrate this. God gave us the land. We sat in the land, King David, King Solomon, everything that you know in the Bible. But the Romans kicked us out, most of us. And we were in what we call the exile. There was one exile on Babylon. We came back. But there was another exile during the Roman period, which took us for a long time to come back. We never completely left. There was always a minority here. But... While we were gone, the Arabs, Muslims, conquered the whole area. So now you have Arab Muslims living in this land next to the Judeans, now calling themselves Palestinian. And when the Jews start coming back to the land in the late 1800s, early 1900s, for national reasons, we thought we could reach some kind of an agreement, arrangement with the people that had been living there since we left. We tried to reach an agreement. The United Nations decided to separate the land, to cut it into two, give the Jewish a land, the Arabs a land. We said thank you. They said no. There have been five major wars. But basically, you have the Judeans who have an ancestral connection to the land. And you have Muslim, Arab, Palestinians today that have been there for hundreds of years. And that is the basis of the situation. When people talk about the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, these being occupied areas, I've heard you talk at length about what this means and how we should think historically about occupation. Well, I have 
a problem with the term occupation on land that by my definition, and again, I might be wrong, but by I think the Bible's definition is Judean land. I mean, it belongs to the Jewish people. So we can't really occupy. The thing is that we have tried to reach an arrangement, an appeasement, a compromise with the other people who are living there now, and that has never worked. So in 1948, we had a war where we actually were attacked by five Arab nations. At the end of that war, they said, okay, we can't wipe you off the map. So the territory that stayed in Israel's hands at the end of the war of 1948 is what we call the state of Israel today. That's when we created our state. I believe that's a fulfillment of prophecy and a biblical miracle on the ground, but there's a lot of people who don't see it like that. In 1967, we fought another war with the Arabs. Basically, they decided to attack us and we preempted the attack. The war that lasted for six days, which is why we call it the Six-Day War. And basically, at the end of that, the areas that we call Judea and Samaria and other people call the West Bank and the area that we call the Gaza Strip and other people call the Gaza Strip fell under Jewish jurisdiction, Israeli jurisdiction, meaning before 1967, the West Bank was Jordanian. Before 1967, the Gaza Strip was Egyptian. After 1967, according to the term occupied, we have occupied the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. That's why it's called occupied. When Americans hear the word occupation, they think of, you know, the Brits occupying after a war. You know, the military force conquers a land. They establish a troops, a government, a police state, if you will, and they rule the people, either indigenous or left behind in that area. And I've understood that's a misnomer when we talk about these areas that Palestinians now live. Am I wrong? No, you're not wrong. And let's see if I can explain. First of all, let's start off with something very clear. The Palestinians never had a state. So when Israel conquers, and I'm going to say conquers, the West Bank in 1967, we conquered from the Jordanians. Jordanians and Palestinians are not the same, okay? Just like Portuguese and Spanish are not the same, okay? They're similar, but they're not exactly the same. So Israel actually, we fought a war in order to defend ourselves. We would consider the West Bank our ancestral homeland, but we fought a war. And at the end of the war, yes, Israeli military is sitting on the West Bank. By the way, the same thing for the Gaza Strip. But then Israel goes back to the Arab world, Palestinians, Jordanians, everybody else, and says, listen, we've conquered this. We will give it back for peace. Let's live in peace. Let's create a state in the West Bank that is Palestinian, and we can reach some kind of a compromise. The only problem is that the Arab world, Muslims have never agreed to come to some kind of compromise, for lack of a better word, agreement, okay, between us and them. So after the Six-Day War, they said no and actually attacked us. So we're in a situation where in control of the West Bank, we're in control of the Gaza Strip. And then Israel does a couple of very interesting things. In 2004, we sit down, I think it was Clinton who made us shake hands, and we reach an agreement with the Palestinians called the Oslo Accords, which basically says, let's start moving towards a Palestinian state. AKA the two-state solution. Exactly. And Israel was willing and accepting that. One of the things that the world pushed the Palestinians into was an election, 
and they had a democratic election in 2000 and I think five or six. And in that democratic election, something very interesting happened. A fundamentalist, pro-Islamic, Islam should rule the world kind of mentality organization. Very similar, by the way, to ISIS in its ideology. Okay, won the election. Meaning most of the Palestinians who went to the ballot wanted an Islamic jihadi leadership to rule the Palestinian territories that were handed over to the Palestinians. We had handed over most of the territory to the Palestinians, and we were in the process. But when this became a situation, then we have a problem because the Hamas, which is fundamentalist, jihadi, Islamic organization, basically says, we don't want to reach a compromise with these Jews. This is Arab territory. We want to kill the Jews. Just say it. They just say that. And Israel says, we can't keep on negotiating, arranging, agreeing, trusting a neighbor who wants to kill us. So the world freaked out, just one more, and the Palestinians broke into two. The West Bank has a Palestinian authority, and the Gaza Strip has Hamas in power. So now, not only do we have the two territories, but both territories are ruled by different political entities, and that's more or less the political backdrop of what we're seeing today. I heard someone recently, and I'm sure you can give me maybe the originator of the saying that if Israel laid down arms, they would be destroyed. If Hamas and the Palestinians laid down arms, there would be peace. I think it's attributed to Golda Meir, and I'm not sure. I strongly suggest for everybody listening to this, go see the movie Golda that just now came out about Mm. Golda Meir in 1973. Give me the accurate quote about the war will never end until... Both Palestinians love their children more than they hate us. Yeah, classic. And I think to a certain extent we're seeing that playing out on the ground today. There is a negotiation, a reaching of an arrangement with the Palestinians in the West Bank, the Palestinian Authority that was run by Yasser Arafat for many years and today is run by Mahmoud Abbas. But after the elections in 2007, when the world freaked out, Hamas overthrew the unity government that was created. So the Hamas is the government in Gaza and the PA is the government in the West Bank. And again, that's hard for people to understand. If you've been in Israel on these tour buses, they have areas, explain the A areas, the zones, and so forth. Well, the A, B, and C areas only connect to the West Bank, and let's put it this way. A areas are under complete Palestinian control. We started a process that was supposed to actually hand over total control to the Palestinians to create a state or some kind of self-autonomy. I would say The idea was something similar to Monaco in France. I don't know if you know the little area of Monaco Monaco in in France. So we were handing over pieces to the Palestinians, say, let's take this. We gave them Jericho, then we gave them Ramallah, then we gave them Bethlehem. And they are in complete control of those areas. They collect taxes, they run the schools. It's a little country. There are areas, though, that are still under Israeli control, meaning in the West Bank, there are areas that are under Israeli control, Ariel, or I would say even East Jerusalem, which is part of the West Bank. And then there are joint areas, meaning areas that are under Israeli military control and Palestinian municipality or political control. But let me make something very clear. In 2015, Israel pulled out completely from the Gaza Strip. 
which means there's no occupation in the Gaza Strip. That's something that a lot of people don't understand. Hamas right. is in control of the Gaza Strip. They're the government. They're the cloud taxes. They have an army that we're dealing with. So when people say that Israel is controlling the life of the Palestinians in the Gaza Strip, that is by definition not completely true. Over here in the States, and of course you've been back and forth recently, but the vitriol toward Israel from some of these pro-Palestinian and some now pro-Hamas, especially in our young folks, has been quite interesting. And I don't want to just be dismissive and say they don't understand history, but I try to listen to, beyond the rhetoric and the fever pitch, if you're a Palestinian born into this very complex political, you know, nationalistic conflict, I mean, this is all you know, David. You know, you grow up, you're trained basically in the Islamic ways. It's who you are. It's your identity. It's your mom, dad, uncle, brother, sister. They're going to look across the border and say Israel's our enemy. They're going to look across the border and say Israel's our enemy for a couple of reasons. First of all, we need to understand that this is a political struggle. This is also a religious struggle. This is also a nationalistic struggle. In a weird way, the Jews, the Israelis, we are a very unique kind of combination because when you say Jews, okay, are you talking about a race, a nation, or a religion? As opposed yeah. to all the other religions <laughs> yes. in the world, yes, <laughs> we are a race, we are a religion, and we are a nationality, which means that the struggle against Israel and the Jews is all three of those. So there's a Muslim aspect. The Muslims believe that they are the preferred. There is no other God except Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. And they believe that they are monotheistic religion upgraded, meaning first Judaism, then Christianity, then Islam. And they believe, and again, if you grow up in a Muslim context, you believe Muslims should be ruling the world. Muslim should be running the world. The Muslim Sharia law should be the way to live. And the more you're fervor and religious, the more you believe that. So they look across the border and there's a whole piece of Muslim territory that is not being run by Muslims. That's an affront to their religion. The Quran says that's not acceptable. Also, he looks across the border and he believes that he is the most important religion. He believes that he is part of the Arab nation which is the greatest nation in the world. And he looks across the border and there are people who are not Arab. Not only are they not Arab, but they're very successful. And he is living on $5 a day. So there's that, okay, what's going on. And then we can make it political because his leadership down through the ages has thought and believed that Israel could be wiped off the map. And I'm sorry to say that's not achievable. So they never thought it important to reach some kind of compromise, solution, agreement. And the hope for a future gets further and further away the more their leadership says, we only want to destroy Israel. And let's make this clear. Hamas wants to destroy Israel. They say it. They write it. They pray it. They teach it to their children in kindergarten. So they're not looking for a change in a situation for a two-state solution. Hamas doesn't want a two-state solution. They want right. Israel off the map. And maybe one thing to put in the ears of people, when people say from the river to the sea, Palestine should be free, that means 
ethnic cleansing of the Jewish people from their homeland. And Israel says, mm. we're willing to compromise. We're willing to reach an arrangement. Let's figure this out. But you can't reach an arrangement with somebody who wants you dead. There's no compromise in that. Practically, I know, and again, correct me, many who live in Gaza, West Bank, these areas, they come into Israel to work. Is that still, I mean, not now, but that's historically been the case, right? Two minutes and give it a little bit of a wider view. In 1948, when Israel becomes a nation, there are Arabs that are living inside what was created in Brno State of Israel. And I'm going to say something a lot of people don't understand. 20% of all the people who have Israeli passports, 20% of all Israelis are Arab Muslims. And that blows people away. They don't understand that the bus drivers on the buses that we drove around in on the tour were Arab. Right. Most of the doctors in the hospital, if I get hurt in a terrorist attack and I'm taken to the hospital here in Jerusalem, most of the doctors are Arab. I mean, we live among and with Arabs in peace and prosperous, the Arab Israelis, meaning the Arabs that live in Israel, are the most prosperous Muslims anywhere in the world. Now, that's kind of weird because everybody's calling us an apartheid nation. The problem becomes, or it gets more complicated, because it's really simple. The Arabs living among us or citizens just like us. Think about, I don't know, Belgium. I don't know if you know, but Belgium is created up of two nationalities, the French and the Flemish. And they live together in unity in Belgium. Usually they get along, but it's a peaceful arrangement. We have that with the Arabs that live with us. The problem is the Hamas in the Gaza Strip and the more militant Arabs that live in the West Bank. And the West Bank, because we are interacting and living together, they work among us, they live among us, they make money with us. I mean, we go fix our cars there. So if there's no militancy going on, everything's fine. And we will be able to reach an arrangement with them. The problem is the Gaza Strip. And again, a very deeply ingrained, militant, jihadi kind of mentality that has taken over the Gaza Strip. And again, my war even in the Gaza Strip is not against the people of Gaza, not against the Palestinians in Gaza. But my war is against a mentality that actually sees the destruction of the state of Israel as a viable objective and is teaching its children generation after generation, which is why a thousand of them crossed over the border two weeks ago and did terrible things in the name of that we need to wipe the Jews off the map. And I think a lot of people don't really realize how deeply ingrained that is in them, but the fight isn't against the people, it is against that mentality. I think it was Harbantal many, many years ago, we sat up there with a group, and you had a series of flip maps that had a silhouette of the size of the state of Israel vis-a-vis the Arab countries around it. And that, to me, was mind-blowing as an American that, you know, it may have been one of the early times I was there with you, but I know you don't have the map in front of you, but walk our folks through this, because that was, again, we often say Israel is about the size of Connecticut or New Hampshire in the United States for a reference point. But when you look at the Arab countries around, it's astonishing the fight over this little tiny, what, 3% of the land mass 
Well, the way we kind of figure it out, I think I figured it out a little while because I'm now connected to California. I've got a, a very important connection in California now. Your Nine, wife? Yeah. <laughs> Congratulations. Yes. Well, thank you. But I figured out that 19 Israels fit inside the state of California. Wow. I mean, think about what we're talking about. But they're trying to get out of California. I'm sorry. I digress. Yeah, yeah. No, um, okay. But no, I'm, I'm 19. telling you. In this whole story... Size doesn't matter, okay? (laughs) (laughs) My point is to help people understand the landmass versus their thing. It's so indelicate to talk about is that the Palestinians aren't wanted by anyone. The Arab nations that would call themselves supportive of indirectly Hamas, they don't want the Palestinian people groups. It's heartbreaking to think these are, if your nationality is Arab, if your religion is Islam, it's almost like a festering, metastasized cancer. We want to stay there. We don't care about the livelihood of these people. We want it to stay there and fester so that one day it will erupt. No, no sadness on our part if the Palestinians are lost in these battles. Yeah, and here's something that a lot of people forget. Let's see if I can pull this off. You okay with a little mask? Of course. We'd love it. Okay. A quick one. This is Israel. This is the Mediterranean Sea. This is Egypt down here. The Gaza Strip is a little strip of land right here on the corner, right there. So this is the Mediterranean Sea. This is bordering the Gaza Strip. The Gaza Strip has two borders with Israel, this one and this one. But down here, it's Egypt. And when Israel is blamed for closing off the Gaza Strip, people forget we close or can close off, seal off our border, though they're not sealed. But the Egyptians have a border. They can open that and close that whenever they want. And, the, and we are not telling Egypt what to do. Believe me. And even in this whole discussion, President Assisi has made it very clear to the world he doesn't want any of that Palestinian problem on his side. So we're being blamed for something that the Egyptians are doing no less than we are. And here's the thing. We haven't blockaded. Again, we will not let them build bombs to kill us, but we let food in, we let water in, we let fuel in. We actually supply two-thirds of their electricity, meaning a cable runs across the border from electric plant in Israel that has been bombed three times that supplies two-thirds of the electricity in Gaza. We're being blamed for some kind of blockade. Maybe this is a place to say something that I, I do think is part of the narrative that we need to talk to a little bit wider. There's a truth war going on as much as there is a physical war on the ground. The narratives are being shaken up. Israel is an apartheid country. I mean, there's no way to kind of prove that. Israel has turned that into a prison. No, that is definitely not true. Israel has occupied their territory. No, there's no Israeli inside the Gaza Strip. Hasn't been for 15 years. They could have turned that into Singapore. But in the truth war, okay, you can say what you want. And the problem is the other side has to prove otherwise. And we're living in a world where truth is relative, where everything is faded, everything is mixed up. And I'm going to say it like this. And again, it's something that's been deeply on my heart, lady. There is a difference between truth and false. And if you are a Bible-reading Christian, you have to know that there is right and there is wrong, there is truth and there is false. That is being faded, dissolved, 
mixed up in our world. And in this war, the truth and false is also playing a role. I mean, the bombing of the hospital that took place four days ago. And Israel was blamed, but then Israel proved that it wasn't us. It was a misfire from their side that fell inside that hospital parking lot. But the people don't want to believe it because I've heard two things. The Jews are smart. It's AI. How do we know? You've heard that. There are actually people who are, are now saying that it didn't happen. So what I'm trying to say is there's a truth and falsehood battle going on. And I'm going to say something a little bit deeper. This is on my heart deeply to say. Jesus said it very clear. I am the way, the truth, and the light. The other name for Satan is the deceiver. Mm -hmm. I believe this is a part of a much bigger battle that has taken yeah. place between truth and deception. And this couldn't have happened if we were not living in a culture and a time where the fuzziness between truth and falsehood has become so distorted. That's excellent. You know, I've been saying for the last three or four years, the only explanation for a lot of our struggles is evil. There's not this organized orchestration of, you know, the Democrats versus the Republicans and their, you know, the machinations. The behavior of some of these people is just evil. There's no other explanation. And when you see what happened to Israel on the 7th, I don't care how you parse it, this is evil. It doesn't matter if it's who did it, who perpetrated, what occurred was evil my fear, David, not to be pessimistic, is I don't know what the antidote is from a geopolitical standpoint. I know spiritually we'll get there. You know, the believer in Christ is safe and secure. We're not exempt from wars and rumors of wars. We're not exempt from horrible things happening to, quote, innocent people. But as pundits and bystanders to just, you know, say, well, all we have to do is this. Yeah. All we have to do is that. They've never been to Israel. <laughs> they've, ne they've never been to the Golan Heights. They've never been in a history book for any length of time. And they are amalgamated. You talk about truth. Social media has been a there flash paper there of false information from the day one. The proprietors of this behind-the-scene algorithms, they're uncontrollable. So in a way, the information battle is lost before it begins which is one reason I'm so grateful for many, you know, people that are having, trying to have a civil conversation. What's really going on? So I appreciate you going there. I do want to come back to the pragmatics, David. What's the outcome of this? Let's say Israel does a surgical precision as best as possible, trying to get cancer out of a system. There will be collateral damage. There will be civilians either unintended consequence of Hamas's misfires or Israel collateral damage, that will make the front page of world news. No matter how true it is, Israel's going to be on her heels. Okay, let's go to the theology. And again, as okay. you know, my worldview has changed in the last couple of years. So I'll go to the end of this. I know who's going to win. Amen. I know. I mean, that's the end. Now we we're can talk. secure. Yeah, we're secure. We're secure in our theology. That hasn't changed. I'm secure in the future, but I got grandkids, brother. Okay. Israelis got grandkids. Palestinians got grandkids. And we look at these precious lives and we go, what a world we've given them. The world has dealt with evil in the past. Evil is not new. I think what's happening with this whole Hamas thing and the Gaza thing is that people who thought everything is relative, 
you've got your truth, I got my truth, you've got your right, I've got my right, you know, and everything is relative. And by the way, I see that happening. I'm going to say in all culture because I think I'm American. But what I'm trying to say is all of a sudden, boom, we are being faced with clear, unadulterated evil. And a lot of people are having a hard time accepting that because if your worldview thinks that everything is on the spectrum and there's no good and evil, then, you know, it's all relative. And I'm thinking that the world, especially the Western world, is going to be hit on the head and most of us are going to have to say, okay, yes, there is evil in the world. Two, we have dealt with evil in the past. World War II was a war against evil. And anybody who knows anything about what happened in Nazi Germany, that was a war against evil. When the United States of America was fighting on the shores of Normandy, there wasn't a question whether Nazi Germany was evil enough. And it was very clear to everybody that evil had to be dismantled. That evil had to be destroyed. Now, that doesn't mean that the German people needed to be destroyed. That doesn't mean the housewives living in the German houses need to be destroyed. But the evil that was running Germany needed to be taken apart because the world could not live with that kind of unadulterated evil. Why am I bringing that? Because Israel is saying, we can't live with that kind of evil on the other side of the fence. So what Israel is going to do is going to go in and dismantle that evil aspect. But, and I'm saying the but here, and I'm going to say this here, and I'm going to start pushing this as much as I can. At the end of World War II, the United States of America rebuilt Imperial Japan and rebuilt Germany. Now, I believe that one of the reasons that they did it is because the United States of America is a Christian culture. Okay? Because the Russians didn't rebuild their part of Germany. We know that. But because we are a Christian culture, that Christianity permeated enough into the administration and the political system to understand that the best way to deal with your enemy is to love him. And we rebuild Nazi Germany, and look what a blessing that's been. What I'm trying to say is Israel will need to eradicate that evil. But Israel is also willing to put together a Marshall Plan the day after that. Hmm. And I think if you want the big picture of that, I think that is what Israel is doing. And I'm going to say that we are going to need the help of people in the United States of America to make that happen. Well, and you're right. I saw a statistic on a very different subject about a year ago that when you look at some of the current administration's influence and how it's affected world charities is striking, but they did a study. Most of these things, and I'll use Africa as an example, the Brits and the Americas put more money into missions, hospitals, schools, women's clinics, education by far than any other country on the planet. And that's been a hallmark. And you're right. I think it is a Judeo-Christian. We talk about that. That's another throwaway term today, but the Judeo-Christian values, even if you want to say they're deists in our history, they did believe in helping and caring for others. And you won't find many countries on the planet running to aid. You are seeing some in the UN that are stepping up to help. I suspect that will continue in God's kindness. Let's go back a little bit too to a biblical theology story, because I've always talked about the cave of Machpelah as one example of the transaction is so codified in the Old Testament 
take us back a little bit to Old Testament history and what happens when some guy named Abraham buys this piece of land. Our worldview and Western civilization's worldview actually stems from a Bible, an Old Testament, and then a New Testament. And I still believe that when God makes a promise, he doesn't go back on it. So the original Abrahamic promise, covenant must be intact, yes. So that means that if we go back to the bottom of the struggle, I mean, if you take the whole pyramid and kind of bring it down to the upside down pyramid on, on its head, okay, God said, land, people, and me were together. God said that. And as far as I'm concerned, God doesn't go back on promises or on covenants. And by the way, everybody listening to this, if he does, we have a very big problem. I mean, that's <laughs> bigger than this. Yeah. <laughs> bigger than this. So now the problem is okay, the people are connected to this land and connected to God. And maybe I'm going to use a couple of other terminologies. We talk about the Jews, we talk about the Hebrews, we talk about the Israelis, all of those are the same. I mean, we're all children of the government. I have a new term that I call themselves. We call ourselves God's kids. I know there are PKs, we're the GKs. Okay. This is. <laughs> Come Show on. Off. It, it, yeah. It, yeah, well, I'm both. <laughs> Show off, yeah. I'm both. But it hasn't been easy to be God's kids. We came out of Egypt. I think something about your million. stubborn and stiff necked people, if memory serves. I, you know, I you know totally. I think, How many came out of Egypt? I think one point two million. You celebrate. Okay, so if we were one point two million a cubby out of Egypt and Exodus, how many Jews should be in the world today? How many Jews are in the world today? There should be billions. There's 16 million Jews worldwide, maybe 17. Half of them live here. Being GKs, God's kids, has come at a terrible price. But we are the apple of God's eyes because what happens to us is indicative of what's happening in the rest of the world. I really do believe that's why God has used us. And even from, uh, you know, depending on your millennial scheme, I happen to be a pre-trib, pre-mill guy. I happen to believe in a literal 1,000-year reign. Romans 9, 10, 11, the messianic movements over the years have always stirred great interest about when many Jews come to believe in Jesus Christ as Messiah, which is, of course, abhorrent if you're a, an Orthodox Jew. But these tectonic movements theologically in the world, make us think, oh, the end is near. I remember your friend and mine, Dr. Charlie Dyer, he says, whenever someone picks the day of Christ's return, you know it's not going to happen because he said no one knows the day. <laughs> so if they say, oh, it's going to, you know, this is the end, this is Gog and Magog, and I'm watching a lot of my friends getting all dusted up about Ezekiel 38, and they're preaching sermons about the end. And, you know, listen, the Lord may be using this piece of orchestration and jigsaw puzzle to his design. I'm not wringing my hands over that. I'm worried and concerned about what happens to both sides. I'm thinking, you and I know Palestinian believers, whether it's Jericho, Bethlehem, Gaza Strip, West Bank, they believe in Christ. But the cultural pressures, forget the worldwide megaphone, make it almost untenable I mean, help me, David, in this piece of land that ostensibly the Jews say, no, it gave it to Abraham, and the Muslims came along how many years later and said, no, it was Ishmael. Not only it's Ishmael, they say, we have it now. I mean, you can do whatever you want. Two things. I feel sorry for Palestinian Christians 
they're between a rock and a hard place. I grew up with a close connection to the Baptist community in Nazareth, which is a Christian Arab city. And they're not accepted by the Jews, the Israelis who run the country, but they're also not accepted by their Muslim brethren, and they're in a problem. And I'm going to say, again, remember, this is a religious and national war at the same time, okay? A racial war. So if you are racially an Arab and you are a Christian, you have a religious problem with interpreting what Christianity has interpreted. And a lot of interpretations have gone in a different direction over the years. Replacement theology is not something that was invented yesterday. So if you already have a national struggle with the Jewish people, then it's easy to latch on to the replacement aspect of the way to interpret the Bible and then lose any kind of respect for Jews. I'm going to say, sadly, my father was part of an organization that brought Jewish Christians and Arab Christians together, and that is unraveled because of the national stresses that come basically from both sides. And that's a shame. I appreciate you bringing up uh, replacement theology. That's a term most people probably are not familiar with. So in certain theological structures, and my Reformed friends typically hold to a replacement theology in that the church, the birth of Acts 2, replaces the nation of Israel. And so you may find in some Reformed background churches or Reformed teaching churches, they don't really care about the Holy Land. They don't care about visiting Israel I sat many years ago, David, with a group of pastors in the D.C. area, maybe three or four tables of eight or ten. I was the token evangelical dispensational weirdo, and rather than talk about the latest movie, I asked these eight guys at my table their view of Israel, and I said, have you been to Israel? Is it important in God's program? Is it just a piece of dirt? Does it matter? And to a man— they said it didn't matter. It was a piece of dirt. And I'm sitting there going, what about the Abrahamic covenant? What about judges in the beginning? Much of the land had yet to be conquered. That promise wasn't abrogated because Israel failed to occupy the land because it was a unilateral covenant. So replacement theology is a teaching, I don't know how old it is, I should, that says Israel has been replaced by the church. They reject the Messiah and ergo the church age is born. So respond to that a little bit, because again, I think folks don't understand the implications of this. Well, let's say you're a Christian living a thousand years ago in you know the Christian world, medieval Christianity, and you're looking around and say, where are those Jews? Where are those Jews that kind of play such a role in the, in the Old Testament? You know, all the Davids and the Solomons and the Jonas and everybody, and you're looking around and the Jews are a tiny little minority that is being persecuted in a terrible way. The Inquisition was built to root out Jews in Spain. I mean, those tiny little rats in the corner of the room. And you say, no, it doesn't make sense that all of these promises are to these people. And for many years, that was part of the the movement that says, okay, if it's not to the Jews, okay, and we're now the Christians, all of the promises, all of the connections, all of the responsibility, all of the GK aspect, God's kids aspect, is moved on to the mother church. And again, there's a special bond between Jesus and his church. But that doesn't mean that the kids that were born before are all of a sudden 
not part of the promise. Well, and that goes back to Romans 9, 10, and 11 from a biblical theological framework. This is what, you know, Paul decries that God's people are, you know, with are, all of their God problems. hasn't broken this promise. Yep, yep. And yet there are self-inflicted issues. Oh. And I, I, I must oh. add here with a guy with uh, a fused back neck, I say I'm a stiff neck <laughs> Gentile. I'm in good company. So that's that's biologically correct. Stepping back as a pastor for 40 plus years, it dawned on me, God chose a people for reasons we'll never know until heaven. He talks about them as a stiff-necked people because he says, all of you sinners are stiff-necked people. Let me use a people group to show you what that looks like. So the wanderings of the Jewish people, the errors and missteps are ours. I mean, we, the goyim are certainly not better than, we're worse than. And that, to me, is what's illustrative of the Gentiles being grafted in, is that we didn't deserve it. We didn't deserve it. Well, I'm going to bring my personal kind of story, and you know a little bit, but I was out in the wilderness. I mean, I'm a PK who walked away and for many years was out, and I have no idea why God called me back. I don't have an answer. I don't deserve it. I didn't do anything to, I'm not such a better person. I'm, I'm a problem. I got my this, I got my that. But God in his mercy decided to reach out for me personally and to save me personally. Now, I think there's a correlation between that and the people. 100%. I don't know why God yeah. decided that these are his people, but he decided. But he decided. Even if I don't understand it, I don't think it's justified. I don't think it's right. But he decided in his ultimate wisdom, he said, these are my people. In his ultimate wisdom, he said, I'm going to save David. I don't know why. Yep. I'm just thankful that he did. And I'm just amazed that God has looked out for this tiny little people that were his people that had been persecuted and murdered and stomped on and killed more than any other people in the world. Okay. And we're standing here 3,000 years after the, the, the Moses came down with the tablets and we're saying we are still here. It's never happened. It's never happened. So I don't know why God selected my people. I don't know what was in his plan, but I do know that God has a plan and what he selects and what he does is going to come out. And I do know that in the end, my people are going to be standing here in this land and playing a role in the final action that's going to take place. I'm not sure, like you said, we're at that stage, but whatever I do know is that whenever it does happen, Yes, we're going to be in the center of it, and that's what God promised. We should end on that because that's a hopeful and positive and grounding statement, but I know our friends are also going to ask some technical questions here, and you're the tank commander. I want to go to tactical questions because you're a guy that knows these kind of things. Oh, yeah. You're going into a metastasized, tunnel-ridden land. The IDF is going to, at some point, breach into there. I suspect they're going to have all sorts of mechanical and uh, tactical things we don't even know about. So you're on the front line. Walk us through what could happen. I saw a movie about the Marines taking Iwo Jima a couple of years ago, and the Japanese in preparation had tunneled and dug and prepared everything. So it was a very bloody hill-to-hill, tunnel-to-tunnel, rock-to-rock kind of situation. And that is probably what's going to go on. It's just going to be moving in probably with armored forces, 
and infantry on the flanks, meaning, let's say, a tank in the middle and infantry going from door to door to door to buildings, clean out the building, the tank moves up. If the infantry are attacked, the tank uses the firepower. And yes, they're going to booby trap. They're going to try everything. One of the reasons that you're hearing about all the bombings in Gaza is opposed to what they're saying. They're not trying to genocide the Palestinians. But we have, maybe not complete, but enough information about the tunnel system, the underground system, that Israel is trying to take out as much of that underground system from the air before the tanks and the infantry goes in. That's what's happening right now. That's the bombing that's going on. Nobody's trying to kill Palestinian civilians. Basically, there's going to be a lot of forces. It's going to be up close and very, very personal. But again, Israel has more technology and more firepower. And now with the situation that has happened, with what has happened to us as a people, I think the Israeli military and behind them, the Israeli people are willing to pay a higher price than we were in the past to make sure that this is not going to happen. Yeah. Well, and again, for folks who don't know the government situation, we think about Republicans versus Democrat versus independents here. But over there, you have a Knesset. You've got a prime minister that can't form a government. How many times was Netanyahu unable to form a government? And now this terrible terroristic tragedy happens, and you got a government, and you're ready to go to work. One thing about the government. Please. You guys have a Republican and, and a Democratic, and there is. But I'm going to say, I, from what I know from history, when— the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. All of that disappeared. Well, and it Not was true it somewhat. At 9-11, it was somewhat true as well. Yeah. Of course, I often say the historians are the revisionists who pretend <laughs> to know the truth. You know, they say, no. well, this is what really happened. Well, you weren't there, but be that as it may. Let's go back to this just again to help people understand. We think about Fallujah. We think about some of the horrible things that the West has been involved with. You're talking not only booby traps, you're going house to house with tunnels, with booby traps, with improvised devices. I mean, you're going to lose a lot of young Israeli soldiers. Yes. And one thing that you didn't add to all of these okay. military determinants are the civilian population that is being used in Gaza. As human And I can totally see a picture like this where, by the way, this happened to me personally. They're driving down the main street. And somebody sticks a AK-47 out of a window and fires at the Israeli forces. And the forces fire back with overwhelming firepower because you don't have to fire back with a small caliber weapon if somebody right. is firing at you. You can use a tank. But the guy with the AK-47 was sitting in a room with the whole family that was cowering there and hiding. And that's the way the war is being fought. And these young men and women that are going in are going to have to deal with those kind of questions, okay? I literally had a, a rifle stuck out of a window. I put the main gun of my tank when I was still doing that. That was in Janine. I was about to put a round into that window, and then only later I found out that there was a whole family of six people in there that would have died if I had put that round in, though I would have been justified militarily, meaning from a military point of view, that is a military. That's the kind of fighting that's going to be fought on the ground. So what Israel has done is said, everybody in Gaza City, leave. Yeah. But where, the where, where, where can they that. go, though, David? 
Well, there is enough space, meaning Gaza, I mean, not everything is built up in Gaza. There's open areas, there's fields, and somebody needs to build 10 facilities on the southern part of Gaza. There is space. Now, Israel doesn't want to conquer Gaza. Let me make this clear. We don't want to hold Gaza. We don't want to occupy Gaza. But we want to go in and clear out the Hamas's military infrastructure. We are going to kill. Uh, clear Hamas's infantry. The battle is not against Gaza. It's against the Hamas. And that's something that a lot of people kind of forget. The battle against Japan was not against the Japanese people. It was against an imperialistic government. The battle against Germany was not against the German people. It was against Nazism and everything that it means. That's what Israel is going in to do. So the bombing is not to retaliate. It is not in revenge. It's in preparation for what's going to happen. But that's not a narrative that you hear. I heard the guy from the Young Turks a a little while ago yelling at the fact that it's not fair that Hamas killed 1,000 and Israel killed 3,000. So that's going to be the situation. And it's going to be hard and it's going to be bloody on both sides. Well, But I think... The other narrative, David, and you know this better than me, is this is a... Res- I mean, sure, what they won't acknowledge what Hamas did, but they'll say even if that was true, it's a retaliation against all the atrocities Israel has been committing against the Palestinians. Okay, so let's start off. West Bank, Gaza Strip. There's no Israelis in the Gaza Strip. If the Gaza Strip had not attacked Israel with tunnels, with bombs, I've seen a group of young men with AK-47s and RPGs climb over the fence in order to kill as many. And again, they say, we will kill as many Jews as we can. They're not mincing words. They're saying we will destroy. If they gave up wanting to destroy Israel, there would be peace tomorrow. And Gaza would have been turned into another Singapore. By the way, they're about the same size. It would have been turned into another Hong Kong. The world would flow with money. Israel would love to make Gaza into another Hong Kong. But we can't do that with somebody who wants to kill you. Right. Again, we're back into this kind of tit for tat. Not that Israel always does the right thing, but since the other side, we believe, and again, the, the overlying feeling in Israel, we have tried. We gave 98% of the West Bank, 100% of the Gaza Strip, but they walked away. They weren't willing to make a deal because anybody who makes a deal with Israel dies. Mm. Look at Anwar Sadat, who was the first Arab nation to make a peace agreement. He was assassinated by who? The Muslim Brotherhood. Who is who? It is the Palestinians. It's the Egyptian version of Hamas. So it's not a war for of compromise. It is, in our mind, a war of existence. Hmm. And I think that's something that a lot of people don't understand. Final thoughts that you'd like your American friends to understand. This is a battle that is more than the battle going on on the ground. My soul is torn that I'm not in uniform on a tank right now. That's my natural place. I shouldn't be there. But I realize that there's another war that's going on, and you're seeing it in the news, on the media. You're seeing a war on truth that has taken place. And I feel that that's my role right now, to stand up and fight for Israel on that battlefield. But if you are a Bible-reading Christian, you know what is right and you know what is wrong, then 
you know that you're going to have to stand in the gap for Israel in what's going to come. It's not that I said that. I think the Bible told you to do that. And pray for us. Pray for us. We're going through a terrible ordeal right now. David Tall, as you can see, brandishing on his shirt, The Balagan Connection. You can find him on Instagram, and I encourage you to watch and listen. He has shorts into TV you can watch, and they'll tell you about the history. And submit a question. If you subscribe to the Instagram to follow him, submit a question, and he'll be glad to answer. And if you didn't catch that, as always, it's in the show notes. We'll have a link to David. Thanks for your time, brother. Michael, thank you. We'll come back and talk again soon, okay? We'll get an update from the Balagan Report. (laughs) Anytime you want. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonamorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.